sure that you're suitably impressed by the fact that I'm wearing a shirt and a tie at the same time. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> in fact, there's a little shock in the control room there when I show that. Okay. Uh, I feel that man, uh, from time to time, should uh, approach his uh, environment formally. Uh, just, uh, you know, test the environment. In fact, uh, did you read about the radio station in England that just has made... Uh, a rule that any radio announcer who appears on the radio station after 5 o'clock must appear in full evening dress. This is on radio. Because they feel it affects the way the guy talks. <laughs> it certainly does. I agree with you there. Oh, no, no. When you, when you, have you noticed yourself that when you get all dressed up and you wear a cummerbund and all that stuff, you suddenly feel very official. Very different. And, uh, they had that rule in effect for three weeks. And finally they had a break. They, they finally had to kill the rule. Did you read the, the upshot of it, what, of it all? Well, <laughs> bring it up. I have to know why. <laughs> oh, we have a note here from one of our... Uh, one of our... Outlying observers out there in the boondocks says, have you ever noticed that the picture of Prince Albert on the tobacco can looks a little like Johnny Carson? No, I have not noticed that. <laughs> what a silly thing. But, uh, you know, uh, this, this business of the evening dress, I, I just want to, I want to tell you, uh, peoples that are out there listening that, uh, that I'm in full, full regalia, uh, in the performance of this show. If you, uh, we tried last year, you recall, uh, in the middle of the year there, we did several shows in the nude uh, to see, you know, what the, the effect would be on the audience, ultimately. And it was, well, we got some rather bad reports as to what this did. You know, see, see there's a lot more transmitted out of this radio transmitted than ever hits the casual ear. In fact, uh, I would say uh, right now one of the most interesting areas of... Uh, of psychic and electrical investigation, electronic investigation, is what they call, this is a curiously uh, non-descriptive title, what they call non-integrated side-phonic effects of broadcasting, of RF transmission. Now, you've probably never heard of that. Well, there's a lot of things, friend, you haven't heard of. That's why you're where you are and I'm where I am. Okay? Now... <laughs> Oh, am I going to get the angry letters? Oh, Mr. Shepard, I think it's terrible. Ooh. Well, that's true. I mean, let's face it. I mean, let's 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 look once the bull right in the face. Let's go in over the horns. Some got it, some ain't. Right? Okay. Now we've settled that. <laughs> in fact, I, I uh, the, the the problem though, of course, with the non-integrated phonic side transmissions involved in RF generation is an interesting subject. In fact, what it what we're really saying, in effect, that listening to the radio, as you sit there, you know, you got the radio on, you may be in your car, that uh, you think you're just hearing sounds, you think you're hearing music. Well, actually, what could be coming out of that radio, if the radio has, uh, you know, broad frequency response and, and uh, is pretty fair, decent radio, is you can be getting also a strong aphrodisiac, among other things, I'm telling you the truth. It's nothing to do with the kind of music that's being played either or what is being said. It is the transmission itself. And there is some evidence to prove that America's population problems, as we know, we have a fantastic population explosion problem, began just about the time they began to install radios in cars. I just leave you marinating that for a bit. You could be the result of a 1932 Motorola Chevrolet model radio. You could very well be. I'm just telling you for your own good. <laughs> and not that it'll do you any good. But, uh, of course, the technical problems are always with us. I mean, you, you, you just can't get, get around it. And I, and I realize that, that uh, we have a definite advantage here. Of course, the frequency that this station transmits on right now affects the non-integrated side phonic 
generated waveforms. In short, if you listen to a station, say, up in the upper end of the band, the aphrodisiac effect could very well be quite the opposite. You could very well be gelded by a frequency, by, by a station that, let's say, is above 1,000 kc. I just didn't. I know this is. The, I'm not. This is all an unproven theory. I'm. I'm just telling you the way the investigations are going. So if you've been wondering why you're, you know, why nothing's happening, could be that you're listening to the wrong end of the dial. Go ahead and laugh. Go on. It's not my glands. Go ahead and laugh, friend. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> hey, George. But, uh, you know, this, uh, this is the way it goes, you know. If, if people people tend to, to scoff at the very thing that is destroying them. Oh, they do all the time. Sure. Why, they used to stand around in crowds and laugh, laugh out loud at the Wright brothers. They did. And they're the same people that are standing in line now at the United Airlines terminal. You know? Hey, <laughs> uh, George. Have I mean, you noticed that there's one, one uh, airline commercial where the guy comes on, he looks real mad. What's he angry about? You know, the, one, the, the guy that walks around in a place and says, uh, you know, the one with the plane flies over him, he walks around in the terminal, he takes you inside, he says, we're going to spend money now on the guys that have uh, have been backing us for years, the guys in the coach seats. You know, you know that one? He looks very mad. Yes, I mean, uh, well, of course, uh, plane travel can make you angry. I, I, uh, I've had some bad scenes in planes, no, nothing to do with the safety or anything. Just little things. And they show these girls doing these great things for people, you know, like fluffing up their pillows and, and the coming around and asking whether they want more gravy on the on the uh, the beef boulonnaise or whatever it is you got, you know. And nobody does any of that stuff for me. I keep riding on the wrong plane. I think it's always happening on some other plane. You know? <laughs> some other plane, they have this fantastic French meal. I always get on the one with the Swiss steak, you know, the one that's made out of rubber. I think, you know, there, there's, there's one airline that I know that they use the meals over and over again. They know full well that you're not going to eat it. And you get it, they just wash it off and put it on the next plane, that's all. You wind up drinking the scotch, that's the end of that, which I never do anyway. But uh, uh, I, I uh, since we're here tonight, speaking of drinking scotch, we'd like to salute uh, Charles Shorty Ferguson. Uh, Charles Shorty Ferguson, the note from one of our spies, who sent me a clipping from the Greenville News in Greenville, South Carolina. That's deep in the whiskey belt, you know. And uh, we'd like to salute uh, Shorty. Uh, Shorty got caught, and uh, we'll quote here. This is from uh, Walhalla. I kind of like that, Walhalla. Walhalla, South Carolina. And it's from the Okini Pickens Bureau. A man was caught napping on top of a 1,600-gallon moonshine still about 11 a.m. Monday when Okini county sheriff's officials they, they moved in on him quick and they caught him he's laying up there on top of the still knocking off a couple of moments of sleep sheriff's officers said they discovered shorty sleeping on the top of the sheet metal still located two miles south of the crossroad section arrested and charged with manufacturing illegal whiskey was charles shorty ferguson 30 and his partner charlie lefty ray woods 37 they picked him up he was hiding in the weeds <laughs> and I like the idea of being caught there laying on top of your still, you know. And and I think this is all part of our technical problems here. Now, uh, you know that last Christmas, this past Christmas, uh, there was a, uh, a concerted effort on the part of certain... Uh, did you see in, in the ads the new hobby that they were selling over Christmas? I wonder if you got this kit at home. It's a wine-making and beer booze-making kit. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating new hobby. You know, make your own V.O., and uh, it, uh, it's a fascinating hobby. Of course, that is un unless you get blown up, uh, which happens. Now, I don't know. Have any of you ever had any any actual experience with a still? No, I'm serious. I'm asking a serious question. Now, don't just look at me and say no. Have you or haven't you? Have you ever seen one? You haven't. Well, I'm convinced that most people have not been up against the totally illicit in their lives. It's only something they read about. <laughs> I'm really convinced of this, that, that, that most people think that, that crime is something that happens in, in grade B movies on the Late Late Show. Either that or it's called mugging. And that's something you read about in the New York papers. Well, now, I, I, uh, I must say that uh, one of the big moments in, the, in, my, in my, my fugitive, festering, growing life occurred uh, as the result of a still. And it was in our neighborhood. 
Now, you see, you may have had many experiences with Stills, friend, and not known it. That's the thing that, uh, that you have to accept. Many times you drive along the road and you look over and say, what's that over there? Somebody says, well, I don't know, it looks like, uh, I mean, it looks like a hay mower. And it could very well be some guy who has a still cleverly disguised as a hay mower. And uh, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly the way it's done. Now, why would a guy have a still? You said, well, you mean you can buy booze anywhere. Most people think that, you know, booze making uh, was a thing that had to do with prohibition. Not at all. You know, when you, when you, when you cook your own stuff up in a basement, you, you, do you know what the taxes are on, on a gallon of whiskey? Why, it's fantastic. And you know what it would actually cost to make a gallon of whiskey? Yeah, and it's practically nothing compared to what it did. So if you could cook up a little bit down the basement there, you'd have a lot of customers for it. Real quick, see? Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, one time when I was a kid, there was this house over in the, over, uh, it was about two or three half blocks away from the machine. You could see it from the front door there, yeah. And it was out in a vacant field. And uh, there was a strange family moved in. As you know, in, in every neighborhood, you probably have in your neighborhood, there's, there's one family that's vaguely exotic. And, uh, yeah, they come in, you know, they move in, they have got a bunch of hound dogs or something, and they, they, uh, <laughs> some, 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 something like that. And they keep away from the rest of the people, you know? And, uh, they, you see them once in a while waiting for buses and carrying strange looking shopping bags and stuff like that. Nothing to do with the rest of the crowd. Well, this house, yeah, this house had a, had a, had a family moved in. See, it was, and, uh, this, uh, Instantly, you know, it was a big deal among all the kids because uh, there was a whole crowd of people. They all moved in. There's a tremendous crowd. It was like there must have been nobody knew really ultimately how many families were in it, but there's a whole bunch of people moved in. And the backyard instantly was filled with old cars and the junk and uh, that kind of family. You know? And uh, they had about nine kids and they were reputed to be Greek. <laughs> because they, they would occasionally be seen on the front porch hollering at the kids in an exotic, totally non-understandable language. That the, we, had, we had run into other languages in our neighborhood. You know, everybody, uh, I, everybody in my neighborhood, including me, spoke about five words of at least three or four or maybe nine different Europa languages. For example, a little Hungarian. I remember Geza Niemann, uh was was one of my close buddies in the... And you couldn't you couldn't go to Gazanima's house more than ten minutes without picking up uh, you know the smattering of Hungarian because that's all they spoke there. So his old lady would holler at you, "Enem tudom tashik," you'd have to answer, you know, and uh, you did. And uh, I picked up a smattering of Polish. I picked uh, a little little Czechoslovakian. You know, I used to say things like "Joshted kavanek kedvish hogatoim," and uh, you know this was all part of the background. But this language nobody understood, even Bolas, who was Polish. <laughs> they'd get out on the street, you know, in front of them, they'd yell, and the kids would start crying, and they'd throw stuff, and the dogs would bark. So they kept to themselves. And uh, mythologies began to grow up around them, like uh, uh, the house was haunted. Uh, this was a thing, you know, and uh, uh, that was believed. Then there was also believed firmly that uh, they were a crowd of gypsies who had stolen the house and uh, had just moved in. And one day they would, uh, you know, the, the law would descend. Then, Because they had that kind of European uh, darkish look to them, see. And uh, boy, did they stick to themselves. Absolutely nobody saw hardly any anything of them except from a distance. You'd see one, a guy on a porch. And they always seemed to wear dark clothes. And you'd see a man once in a while out on a porch with suspenders on. And they had mustaches. You see the scene now. Mythology began to grow. Kids, you know, hide in the bushes and peer at the house. And, and uh, this went on for a couple of years. Then eventually everybody just sort of forgot it. They just were there. See, Nobody said anything about them anymore. They were just there. But the backyard was always filled with old cars. And there was a big old garage in the back. <laughs> and this, upon that garage, hinges the whole story. It was an old ramshackle house. And the... At one point, it just dropped out of everybody's consciousness. Nobody paid any attention to it. That was the end of it. Once in a while, you'd hear exotic music on late nights. You'd hear the, the faint sounds, the vaguely native kind of music. You know, you'd hear drifting off over the, over the, over the fields. 
And, and once in a while, somebody would, would holler out of the window, Will you shut that off? I'm trying to sleep! And, of course, then there'd be another answering blast of this strange language would come echoing out of the house. <laughs> but that didn't make any difference because everybody else in that neighborhood, you know, all the radios and stuff that was going on all the time, there was uh, Gene Autry was constantly singing out of the house next door. <laughs> and uh, across the street, you constantly heard the sound of Lawrence Welk. And uh, so it was just a general cacophony of sounds. And all around it was the sound of the natives, see? You hear this clunking, twanging sound, vaguely Middle European, vaguely uh, Borneo headhunter, the little, you know, just a little touch of, uh, of uh, the Middle East that just sort of rang out until that fantastic night, which is even today, legend in northern Indiana. Zap. Everybody's asleep, see? And, uh, it's two o'clock in the morning. It is midwinter. I mean, so cold that I want to tell you brass monkeys were walking around wearing fur pants. Man, it was cold. And just like it gets, you know, out there. The temperature had plummeted to about, oh, 5, 10, maybe 15 below zero. And it was a cold wind blowing. And that was the scene at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I've always felt, ever since, you know, a few little incidents in my life, including this one, that the, 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 the things that happen to you in life, I mean, really happen to you, are rarely telegraphed. You don't know they're about to occur. You just don't. I mean, the things that traumatize you, you just don't expect them. Just like Pearl Harbor, you know, boom. Next thing you know, nothing but dust. Well, it is now 2 o'clock in the morning. Everything is quiet. You could hear the snow crackling. That's about it. And in the next room, from where I was, the old man is asleep. And uh, he really, you know, he, when he slept, he slept. And he worked at sleeping. The house is silent, and oh, it's so cold. It's two in the morning. Now, how I knew it was two, because later the investigation came out that it was two in the morning. I was completely conked out. I was not aware that it was two in the morning. I, too, was deep in the land of Nod, you know. I was gone. When all of a sudden, without any warning, I mean, without, without, a, without even a hint... Now, remember, these people have lived in the neighborhood for ten years now, ever since I was a little tiny kid. Now I'm a late teenager, you know. Without any hint, son asleep, the old man asleep, my mother asleep, next door, Bruner's asleep, the whole neighborhood's asleep. It happened. Whap! My God! I, I felt, I felt everything sort of rock, see? <laughs> well, I, I, I woke up, <laughs> I'm looking around, see? And I hear the next, in the next room, the old man, who, by the way, was a great disaster fan. Uh, no, my father, my father loved disasters. I mean, if, if he heard there was an automobile wreck seven miles away at five in the morning, he was in the car going, you know, he wanted to see it, see? He, wherever there was a column of smoke, the old man would be seen heading like mad, you know, to watch it, you know? He watched more fires, more automobile wrecks, more guys jumping out of buildings than any guy I've ever known. See, so instantly I hear the old man. Oh, 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 oh. He's hollering in the next room. He says, "Hey, hey, oh, what happened? What happened? The furnace blew up." Oh, oh. And then you heard a, a rumbling. It just kept rumbling. It is obviously not in our house. It's out somewhere else. See, and then there was a couple of little tinkling sounds. You know, Ping, boing, bang, crash. You hear things like falling, you know, from the sky. And with that, the omen says, oh, oh, great, an explosion. He jumps up, see, because we had a lot of explosions in our area. And, and due to the fact that not more than a half a mile away was the biggest refinery in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, Standard Oil, uh, Phillips, uh, Shell, Sinclair, they all had these fantastic refineries that stretched for miles. And about every couple of years, you know, pow, up would go one of the one of the uh, the tanks, 
We used to we used to blow up crackers. You know, you know that you know uh, the stills, the big crackers that crack uh, petroleum down into gasoline. There's uh, big stills. Those things used to go up like Roman candles about every two years. You know, and the old man would run like hell down there. In fact, one night, this uh, this uh, still blew up. I think it was at Sinclair, and it was in, it was visible. You could see it. It was right on the horizon. This is very flat country, you know. And we could see it looking out the back window of our house that the still, all of a sudden, it was at lunchtime. Zap, up it went. And it looked like a like a Vesuvius. It was a tremendous thing. It was just sticking up in the air. There's a great, great gout of flame and big smoke. Big, tremendous, uh, a genuine mushroom cloud. You know, that is a typical cloud of a high... Uh, of a high-heat explosion, that mushroom cloud thing. It's not just atom bombs that make that. This fantastic cloud, it's uh, it's about like eight miles high over our, uh, over our town in black smoke. Well, this thing blew up, and it backed up in the pipes. You know, there were these underground uh, petroleum pipes caught on fire. And the next thing that happened, it all happened like in two and a half minutes. It was like a chain reaction. The entire river, there was a river that ran all across the town and uh, off one uh, horizon and out the other. The, the Calumet River was in, on fire. <laughs> the river was on fire. I mean, it was on fire from one end of the horizon to the other. And when, you know, you see scenes like that, you get used to explosions, see? Yeah, and, and uh, you get to be kind of an aficionado, you know. The, you see a second-rate explosion, you don't even go there, you know. But once in a while when you see a good one, you, you say, oh, yeah, you know, that reminds me of one that we had, remember, three weeks ago when, the, you know, where the top of the school blew off and everybody went down... Well, so, <laughs> so this one was had had a special quality to it. See, for one thing, it was at night. Uh, they didn't happen very often at night for some reason or other. This one happened at night, and it seemed to be very close, and it had a ringing quality to it. It just went, boom! Yeah, it just sort of echoed, you know. And guys falling out of bed and yelling, and then instantly, as you, if you've ever been around any disaster like that, you know what happens. You hear faint hollerings. You, you hear people hollering. <laughs> not not the people that are blown up, but just people. You know, just the way, oh, 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 guys yelling. And then you you hear you hear the sounds of windows going up and stuff. And of course, the old man is running around like he's out of his bird. You know, he's trying to put on his overshoes over his over his pajamas, and he wants to get the hell out there. So he wants to see it. So everybody's pouring out, and and it hit us. There it was. The Greeks' garage had blown sky high. I mean, sky high. That was a fantastic thing of flame coming out of it. See, <laughs> everybody rushes out. You know, the people were in the streets. The temperature was like five below zero. It was really cold. And you see old ladies running around with their hair up in curlers. You know, wearing bathrobes. Kids sloshing through the snow. They're all crowding over there to see it. See, and the entire landscape is covered with fleeing Greeks. You could see them. They're running like mad. <laughs> you see, one guy was trying to get the car started. Everybody's running. And of course, at that point, the, the fire engines, nobody had come, you see. And from way in a distance, you could hear the sound of... The fire engines are coming, and the place is burning, and these guys are cutting out. You could see them pouring out. Nobody knew why. They're running, you know, they're jumping in their cars. They have these old trucks, and they're roaring down the driveway through the snow. Off into the middle distance, they're going, and the garage is burning. Everybody's trying to help them, you know. And the firemen arrive, and three guys, three firemen rush in there, and they've got these big hoses that attach their trucks, and they've got fire extinguishers that run like mad back there. And three squad cars arrive, and I hear one fireman holler, Hey, quick, get quick the chief, chief out! <laughs> and then it came out. Why, amid all the smoke and the flame and the no, and the excitement, there was also a very exotic, sweet aroma that filled the entire neighborhood. The Greeks had built under the concrete floor of their garage a major operating still. They must have been turning out 15 million gallons of rot gut an hour, and they had parked these old cars on top of it as a blind and they had a, a trap door where you go down under the one of the old cars, and there under this thing was this whole setup. It was under the garage. And it had blown sky high. 
one of the operators apparently had fallen asleep, you know, and he was supposed to add a little yeast or something, and he didn't. And up she went, pow, just like that. And they disappeared. They were gone. They left their house, their banjos, their ukuleles, the native music, the whole bit. They were gone. Silence. They never showed up again. Nobody ever heard of them again. And for, oh, I'd say five years, that house just sat there. Sort of a brown frame, dilapidated-looking house growing up with weeds. Old Chevys and Oldsmobiles, and there was a Dodge pickup truck in the backyard there. A bunch of old radiators and busted transmissions all over the ground. And the garage, what was left of it was just a crater with the shell of a garage around it. And every once in a while, you know, kids would play over there. You'd find, you'd find busted jars. You'd find little pieces of, of copper tubing. You'd find <laughs> chunks of zinc. <laughs> and always, no matter what happened, as long as I can remember that house there, you could smell. Apparently, this stuff, had, when it blew up, it permeated the ground. You could smell that curious, sickening, sweet smell of raw, fresh, cooked, boiled, illicit alcohol. That was the legend of the Greeks. And it grew to fantastic proportions later, you know. The, uh, as people talked about it years later, you know, it got to be tremendously, it was got to be a legend. And, uh, and they used to talk about the time the Greeks' house blew up. They called them always the Greeks. I don't know whether they were Greek or not. <laughs> it was just the time the Greeks' place blew up. And not uh, not one of those Greeks was ever seen again. The big big story in the paper came out the next day. Mysterious explosion. Rocks neighborhood. This is an illicit still blew up. And, of course, this was a big deal. A lot of people... Uh, like to see that. Uh, people collect clippings about their own neighborhood. And even to this day, there are people sitting back out there and, <laughs> you know, that was the high point of their life. And, uh, you know, legend. Legend legend is more important than fact. And so that, that <laughs> when I read about that guy in the still, I thought to myself, I wonder how many people have ever seen it. You know, have ever been around anything like that? That was well after, you know, all this uh, business of prohibition and all that. These guys were in some kind of business. Yeah, that's it. That's just blue sky high. Well, I mean, that's that's not the only uh, the brush. Have you ever had a real brush with the illicit? Have you ever almost fallen into a thing? I'm mean, seriously. It, it's amazing how easy you can fall into a life of crime. I'm very, I'm very, very, very honest and serious about. It. Most people think, oh no, I'd never do that. Why? You know that that <laughs> I remember one time. A friend of mine came up to me and said, this guy I know, an old friend of mine. And uh, he says, uh, he says, you know, he said, boy, I met this guy at a party the other night. And, uh, man, he's uh, we're in the wrong business, you know. And here I am. I'm in college, see. And he says, uh, you know, I met this guy at a party. He says, gee, you know, this guy made in less than two years. This guy started with $5,000, and he is now a millionaire several times over. And I said, how? I said, real estate. He said, real estate. What is it that uh, that people need uh, more than ground, land, a place to live? It's a basic thing. He says, you can't go wrong getting it on a basic thing, right? I said, yeah. You know, we're at a party there at that point. So he said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounded logical. And he says, you know, and he told me, and this is how the story went, he says, I, I ask him, you know, how, to, how do he get in this? He says, well, he, he, he buys this property and he sells it and he buys it and sells it. And, and he says, it's fantastic. And you don't even have to start with much money. All you got to do is put down a certain amount of money, uh, you know, like uh, to get in the business. And you, you make a down payment on this land. And the next thing you know, somebody comes along and buys it. And then you take the price of that. And you don't bother it. Goes, it gets very complicated. See, I'm a totally rotten businessman. So you could tell me anything, you know, and I'll buy it. And uh, he says, uh... You know, it's, it's really, uh, what you got to do is have foresight. 
says, you know, a lot of guys started with nothing, and now, you know, they made it big. And uh, most guys spend all their lives, all their lives, you know, working away, and they figure that uh, that uh, their salary and all that, that's that's the way you get it. He says, nah. He says, yeah. what you do is you take your salary as just a base, and then you work from there, see. And I says, oh, really? He says, yeah. He said, uh, in fact, I just went in with him. He asked me if, if I wanted to go in with him, and he'd... he'd uh, he, uh, you know, it's a tax deduction. He doesn't need all the money he's making now. And uh, if he had a partner, it would actually be less for him tax-wise. And now that sounded logical to me. I don't know anything about that stuff. Tax-wise, it was a good deal for him to have a partner in there. And uh, what what I do, you know, is uh, all I have to do every couple of days is nothing to it. He says, I, I gave him, uh, him $5,000. And he said, every couple of days, you know, I sign the papers and it goes back and forth. Well, I, I felt this twinge of envy like most of all of us feel when we hear about guys that are in the on the ground floor of some fantastic thing, you know. And so a couple of months, maybe a year go by, and I meet this guy again. Now, this is a true story I'm telling you. I'm not inventing this. I'm an absolutely true story. A couple of, couple of months, maybe a year go by, and I meet him again. He says, oh, man, he said, did you boot it? And I said, what do you mean boot it? He's, he says, you should have gone in when I asked you to go in. He says, it's fantastic. I says, really? He says, well, I'm going to tell you, this past year alone, just this past year, in my spare time, made over 75 grand. Whoo! This is a guy in school, see? I says, what? He says, listen, I want to tell you. He says, it's fantastic. He says, not too late. He says, if you, and he's very frank, see? He's and very honest. Remember, this guy was also taken in, I want to point out. Don't assume I'm telling you the story of a crook. I'm not. This guy was taken in, too. He says, look, he says, I want to tell you, he says, uh, I want to I get my friends in on this. There's no reason why not. You know, he said, this is fantastic. He said, all you have to do is, is uh, give me, uh, he says, uh, maybe a, if you can scrape together five, $6,000 and uh, and uh, put it in the kitty, he said, and, and all you have to do is once in a while, he says, he makes this, my, my partner, he said, he makes the deals. All you have to do is sign as a partner. He says, then you cut in on the profits. I said, really? Well, my problem is that I have a very short span of concentration. Also, I'm uh, I'm very dumb about certain things. I have I'm I'm notorious in having missed the boat in at least four hundred major deals in my life. Oh, I'm, I'm fact. I have a track record that is unparalleled in the deal missing field. I, I'm I'm good at it. So uh, I said, really? Is that true? Well, I was easily distracted. A chick came over, you know, and she has this. Uh, this uh, this plateful of dilly beans, and uh, she's uh, handing out martinis. And the next thing you know, I'm talking to the chick. And five minutes later, we're out in her car, and uh, you know, we're driving around the countryside. And uh, that that lasted for the whole weekend. And it got you know, I woke up uh, the following Monday. I couldn't hardly remember the party and the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, oh, was I lucky? I couldn't believe my luck. Three weeks later. I wake up in the morning, you know, and I walk down. Remember, I'm going to school. I'm going to college. I walk down, and uh, and uh, I had a class at 8.30, and I was really feeling rotten. I felt, you know, that sometimes you just don't feel like dealing with the Punic Wars. And, uh, you know, this is a dullness and personified, and it's 8.30 in the morning. It's about 10 after 8, and I, I walk into this lunchroom. I always stop this lunchroom, and I get myself a cup of coffee and a donut, and I go in the lunchroom there, and uh, the guy always had a bunch of papers, the Bluebird, the Bluebird uh, Diner. So he was at the Bluebird Diner. And I sit down at the Bluebird Diner, and uh, Gus is back there, and he says, give me my coffee, Gus, quick. I'm late. And he says, okay. And he says, you want you want the sugar donut or plain? I said, give me the sugar this morning. I need any all the energy I can get, you know. So he gives me the sugar donut. I'm drinking the coffee. And I see the guy next to me who's hunched down there, the guy, A&P truck driver or something, He's got the morning paper. And I'm just looking at it, you know, I'm drinking the coffee and I'm half asleep and I'm bugged because i got to go and mess around with the Punic Wars and all that stuff. And it's kind of raining out. It's a miserable day. And I look over there and I take a double take, you know. On the front page is a picture of my friend. And above it is a single word, nabbed. Have you ever had a friend described in those terms? Nabbed. <laughs> Holy smokes! I says, oh, you know, I staggered back, and I, 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 I lean over and I says, "Excuse me, can I look at your paper?" And he says, "All right, Mac." He says, "Give me it back, though. I want to look at the sport page." 
And there's the story. It says, uh, Charlie W. Ockweiler, student, was nabbed last night in the culmination of a six-month investigation of a sneaky, fake, phony, baloney real estate ring in which he and his friends, <laughs> and he goes on this whole thing, say, nabbed. N-A-B-B-E-D. Exclamation point. Umlaut. Nabbed. She. Well, to put it mildly, I followed the ensuing law case with avid interest. Are you curious what he got? Seven to fifteen. Bump, ba dum, bump. And there were three other people picked up in the same dragnet. Two of them were people I had been to parties with. Just knew by name. Boy, am I glad that chick showed up with them dilly beans. And that, that tray of martinis. Do you realize I might have said, yeah, you know, what the hell, you know? I get some dough, I say, when I was in the Army. Why not? That's the way it happens. And I could just see myself three years later, see him sitting in his cell. <laughs> A case-hardened criminal. Safe-cracking shepherd. Sitting there, you know, in the Ohio State pen. Just cooking, marinating. Well, uh, that's not the only one. You want to hear another brush I had with the same scene? Now, now I'm, I'm just giving you this by nature of a, of a, uh, of a confession. Not really a confession. These are brushes with, with uh, what could happen. Just simply could happen. I'll tell you another story. Again, this happened when Shepard is in school. It seems that's the period when you can get caught real quick, you know, because people at, a, at that point in their life are open to almost anything. Uh, they're far more naive than they think they are. They're far more ignorant of the world than they think they are. And they're just plain dumb, generally, at that point. You don't know much, you know. Uh, although you think you do. So you think you're really on top of it, man. I'll tell you, the old man is really dumb, you know. <laughs> you always figure your old man is dumb. But you know what the, you know, what the score is about. So, Shepard got hanging around with a bunch of guys. I'm at school again, you know. And you know how you do. It's a big school. And I got, I just sort of knew people and knew different groups and so on. And I got hanging around with the music crowd. You know, there's, a, there's always a crowd in every school that, that is hung on music. I'm not talking about guys that play in the band. I'm talking about jazz fans, guys that, uh, you know, that go to these different joints. So there's about nine jazz joints around and People, every night, they'd, they'd cut out, you know, and they'd go and hear this guy and hear that guy. And they had a little jazz club and the whole scene, you know. And uh, this, is, this is the way it is, you know, in every school. So I, I sort of hung around with this crowd just casually. Well, one of the guys in this club was a, was a guy that was a lawyer. He had just, he was a graduate student, see, and he had just gotten his law degree, and he had come back to school. He was in the graduate school doing something. I don't know what it was. I knew he was a lawyer, see, and he was, he was a bright, he was the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, the, the man most likely to succeed. He really was, you know. In fact, he he uh, he was the kind, you know, the guy that everybody he was like the student president at one point, the student uh, union president, and he edited the yearbook and all that stuff. And he was dynamic, and not only was he dynamic, but uh, he was uh, already tabbed, you know, as the guy that was going to rise to become district attorney or something. He was really really on top of it. So, you know, the whole world opened up to him. It was like he was going to become a top politician, the whole thing, and he had a tremendous personality. And uh, he had his own dance band, played the clarinet. And uh, so, you know, he was really with it. He, this guy would uh, play uh, jobs all around. And, and uh, you know, you know the kind of guy. There's always one in every school. And uh, so I used to hang around very impressed by this guy, see. And because uh, he, he was really on top of it. Here he was, you know, he was 22 years old. And he already had a band and he had his law degree. And at the, he was already working in some big politician's office. And he was, a, he was the assistant legal aide for youth problems to the mayor, all that stuff. See, so one day we're sitting in the purple cow, purple cow, okay. And uh, I noticed uh, he he drove up and uh, he was really on top of this guy. This guy uh, he lived in a great way too. He was the first guy I ever knew, for example, that had a jaguar. 
I mean, he goes out and buys a great, great big brand new. It was a the the, the silver colored Jag and with red leather, magnificent car. So he comes tooling up in the Jags, blah blah, and he parks outside of the <laughs> he parks outside of the purple car, and I'm sitting inside the purple car, and he pulls up, say, and I see him, I say, hey Johnny, how are you, John? And he comes in, and you know, you know, always feel kind of great when you're, uh, you know, when you see yourself as kind of a nothing in school. And you may be or you may not be, but you always feel great when the big type, you know, the big man on campus recognizes you. You know, some big, type, like a top halfback or something. See, so this guy walks in. He says, how are you, Shep? And he sits down at the, he's, oh, was he cool, man. You know, he, he had it all gone. I had his, his own band. He had the Jaguar. And he was living with this chick. He was, this is another thing that impressed us. He, he was living off campus and he had this fantastic girl, you know, at that. So he comes into the, into the purple con. He says, how are things going? I said, gee, fine, John. Okay. He said, no, how are things really gone? You know, you, you, you're really happy. And I said, yeah, you know, what, what are you driving at, John? He said, you know, I kind of like you. I said, <laughs> thanks, you know, gee, I, well, you know. Uh, that's that's kind of nice, you know. I'm glad you do. And he's looking at me real appraisingly, see. And so he says, uh, "Hey, uh, waitress, a couple of coffees here." So he ordered some coffee. We had a couple of waffles. We sat in the purple cow and talked until four o'clock in the morning. It started roughly about ten. Have you ever had these long talk sessions? You know, where you you start getting to the point where you don't even know what the hell you're saying, and you're saying things like. You know, Matt, when you when you get into the you get to the profound stage where you say things like, I'll tell you, I don't care what they say. It's the little things that count. I don't you know, you, you come out with all this you know, this jazz and, and so we're at that stage and we're talking away in his Jaguar sitting out there, and all of a sudden a cop shows up at the Jaguar. And he's overparked. You see, it's a one hour parking lot. He's been parked out there for like nine hours, see. So with that, John gets up and he walks out. He says, wait a minute, don't, 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 don't panic, he says to me. And what a cool scene. He walks out, and here's the cop. He's just about to write out the ticket, you know, 15 bucks. He's about to write it out. Now, whenever this would happen to me, you know, I'd practically pass out. So John says, wait a minute, don't worry, I'll take care of it. He walks out, and he's talking to the cop. And the next thing you know, they're hitting each other on the back, and they're laughing, see, at John, uh, they shake hands, and the cop uh, is looking at the Jaguar, and he says, hey, you know, and the, he's got the hood open. I'm really impressed. And they put the top down and the hood down, and the cop is waving, and he sits in the seat like he wants to know how it drives. And finally, the cop gets on his motorcycle and goes off. And there ain't no ticket hanging on the windshield wiper. I am impressed. So John comes back and says, hey, I want another coffee here. I said, John, that was fantastic. How'd you do that? Eh, hey, you know. You gotta know people, you know. You get so you know these things. Now, I just mentioned a couple of friends I have, and he was understanding. Oh, was I impressed? This guy was on top of it, totally. Three weeks later, it is announced that he has received a major appointment to a major office. A federal office. And they ain't no stopping them now. I mean, every time this guy would show up wherever I was at at a party, and I remember he's still in graduate school, studying something like psychology. He already had his law degree and was working as a junior lawyer in this place, and he gets this, this, big, this big appointment. And then came the second night at the Purple Cow. Almost identical. I'm sitting in the purple cow. He tools up in his Jaguar. He walks in. And he says, how are you doing? I says, okay, John. Would you like to make some big money? Now, I'm not smart. And I'll, I'll agree with the next guy that, it, you know... <laughs> I'm just like any other smallmouth bass down there in the lily pads. Somebody throw that plug at me that says big money on it, I'll go too. But I, I no longer put down instinct. A little thing in my mind, 
I don't know. I can't honestly say it was honesty <laughs> or anything else. Something just went ding. John's looking me in the eye. He says, you want to get, get in on big money? Ding. I said, ah, well, you know, John, I, I don't... Uh, I don't know anything about business. And all. He said, no, you don't have to know about business. He said, I'm not talking about business. I'm talking about something else. He says, three or four guys I'm getting together. I said, nah, John, I don't, I don't want to stay here in town. I want to leave town. He said, what? You're going to regret it. Don't, don't say I didn't ask you. You're going to regret it. I said, well, you know how it is, John. You win some, you lose some. He said, I'll drink to that. So we had a couple of purple cows. And we sat around for a while. We got into that maudlin stage again, talking about profundities. John got in his Jaguar and drove off. It was the last time I ever saw him. Because you know how your life goes. About that time, I, I left and went to another place, another school. His life and my life and the whole life that I'd lived disappeared. One night, two years later, I am sitting in Chicago. In fact, I'm at a friend's house. We're paying no attention to anything. We're sitting there. In fact, the friend was Shel Silverstein. We're sitting around shooting the breeze in his, in his room, talking about stuff. There was another guy there. We're just talking away. We're about to go out someplace. And there's this television set in the corner. Is playing away. <laughs> you know, it's just going on there. And I'm sitting there and I says, ah, I'll tell you, show the next time we do. And I look over there and there's a, suddenly a familiar face is on TV. See, and I said, Wait a minute, I know that guy. And the voice is saying, Nabbed in this federal drug rap was John XXX and his two companions who had been working a federal rap. Are you curious what he got? Twenty-one years. They caught him taking a major bribe. <laughs> he had some kind of a fantastic drug ring going. And I thought, oh. Oh, man. <laughs> and Chell said, what's the matter? He looks at me, what's the matter? I said, nothing, Chell. Just looking at that, you know, I just had a narrow escape. I said, what do you mean? I said, a narrow escape, Shell. You know how you and guys like Johnny Cash are always singing these phony songs about the, you know, jails, federal pen? I could have been one of the guys you were singing them to. Whew. Right past me it went. And then the time that Tony, Tony in the mayor room, <laughs> I'm working in the steel mill. This kid in the mail room's with me. And Tony comes up to me one day, this buddy of mine, who, by the way, went to school with me, a very clean, straight, honest kid. He comes up to me and says, Hey, do you need any tires for your Ford? That's why it so happens that I do, Tony. <laughs> he says, Well, look, I can get new tires for your Ford. 650, 15s, 16s. You name the size. Seven dollars and a half a piece, brand new ones. I said, no kidding, where? He said, well, there's this guy in the south side that I met the other night at a party. He says that he gets them from the factory. He's got a special deal with the factory. And he sells them at his place. You go down in the basement, he's got to know you. He doesn't want you to talk about it, but they cost seven bucks and a half a piece. I said, no kidding, Tony. Well, I was flat busted, thank God. I had no money. So I'm thinking, well, I'm going to start saving up till I get $15 and buy a set for the back tires, you know. Three days later, I'm standing in there sorting mail. When I see somebody looking over my shoulder, I look up, and it is a man wearing a blue suit. He's got a badge. He say, hey, kid, did you know Tony Spoleto? I said, yeah, yeah, you know, figure, you know, just come with me. We went into the front office, and for 15 minutes they grilled me about a stolen tire ring. Tony? He says, yeah, Tony. You sure you didn't buy no tires? 
No, no. Here, I still had my $12. I was on my way, you know. One more thing, and I'd have been in there. And it turns out that Tony, that Saturday, had gone to this place on 63rd Street and was down in the basement getting the tires for himself and two of his cousins when they closed in. Tony was caught in the net. One set of tires in the back seat of his Oldsmobile and two of them, one under each arm, when they put the arm on him. Tony got two to eleven for abetting, receiving, and aiding in the distribution of stolen property. Ever since that time, I, you know, I'm worried that I may fall asleep on top of a still. Join Shorty, you know. For all we know, Shorty was just walking by. He felt a little tired, a little weak in the knees. And his friend Lefty says, well, why don't you take this... Take a take a nap on top of that that brass tank over there. And if anybody shows up, whistle. Tony's getting fifteen years. Shorty, Lefty, John, the clarinet player, my friend with the real estate deal. You may be next, buddy. You know? Walking down the street and that guy's standing there, he says, hey. You like a Japanese transistor radio with seven bands? Selling them for $3 each. These things retail for $175 everywhere. How would you like to have a Japanese transistor radio? See, I got a friend that just came back from Japan. He bought them from this little Japanese who works in the factory. They, he got it for 75 cents a piece, and I'm willing to let you have one for $3. Come here, back in this alley, and we'll talk it out. Oh, the devil is always on here. Beckoning. Big money. Big money.